Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Eric Homaker at Homaker Wines. It's January 12th, 2021. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eric. We appreciate this. Absolute pleasure. Uh, first question for you. Uh, why wine? Ha! That's a, that's a funny one. It goes back a long way. Um, I grew up on the Monterey Peninsula in Central Coast, California, working in high-end restaurants, uh, Carmel, Monterey, Pebble Beach, and... Uh, you know, uh, as a high school kid, being a busboy and stuff, uh, fine dining places, you know, I just got interested in wine. And uh, I think, um, I don't know, I think I got to the point where at the end of the night when you'd sit down for a staff meal, if it was at the end of the night, uh, or staff glass of wine at the end of the night, everyone's spending their tips on great Great wine, and uh, especially Pinot Noir. And so I think for me, Oregon was in my stars early on and just really loved, uh, became enamored with wine. And as a high school kid especially, I think, uh, you know, when most of my, uh, most of my friends were drinking low and brow, and I'm going, have you guys heard of Burgundy? You know, this is really great. So um, anyway, that was, that was the start. And... Uh, I had a, a restaurateur that took an interest in me uh, early on, uh, Glenn Hammer, uh, and he saw that interest and really fed it and, you know, ultimately talked a bit about Davis. And so that kind of hung in my, the back of my mind for, for the first few years out of high school and definitely all the way through high school. When you say fed your interest, I'm curious how that how that took place. Was it was it about wine as a beverage or more wine as like a pursuit of study? Well, I think I think as a as a kid, I was blown away that people, you know, um, we're talking the late '70s and '80s, people that were buying uh, really expensive bottles of wine, and I was kind of like shocked. Uh, you know, like, what the hell are you spending all this money on, uh, you know, a, a drink? And, um, and over time, I, I, you know, I got a little bit of knowledge and, and had people around me uh, that kind of fed that uh, and said, you know, this is really a cool thing and, and kind of exposed me to the thinking about wine, uh, wine as a food, uh, wine as a uh, kind of a bottled memory of a point in time and a place in time and uh, it grew from there mm-hmm. and uh, that was it for sure so tell me about the UC Davis experience tell me about uh, <laughs> deciding to go there in the first place and mm-hmm. what kind of prompted that act to, to happen and then tell me about your time there um, well uh, going to Davis was you know I, I just felt it was like too I, I didn't believe that it was a real opportunity, I think, for a while. And so uh, I first went to school elsewhere and studied 
what I thought I wanted to do, which was like most winemakers, I think, uh, was medicine and biochemistry and and really loved that. But uh, I think, well, when I was I was at UC Santa Barbara and, and a roommate of mine, uh, her father ran this series of hospitals near... Uh, near where I went to, where, where I grew up in Monterey uh, Community Hospital and that whole group. Um, and this fellow, Tom Tonkin, uh, thought or heard that I was interested in medicine. He's like, oh my God, don't do that. You know, whatever you do. And, you know, his, his whole thing was as an administrator of his group of hospitals, you know, he befriended me and said, you know, if you're totally drawn to it. If you really have to do this, if you have to be a healer, then go do it. But if you're not, by the time you get out of school, it'll be socialized medicine and what you see, uh, what you've seen from doctors in their life, uh, are, it's not going to be the norm. You know, we're going to be it's going to be changed and that it's going to be really hard. And at one point he actually brought down some papers on the statistics of uh, the problems doctors have, uh, alcoholism rate and so on and, you know, divorce and all these things. And he's like, if you really got to do this, you know, then go do medicine. Otherwise find something you really love and go chase that. And, um, I, at that point I had applied to Davis and then, uh, backed out and said, no, I'm going to stay here. And then I went back and I applied again and, um, made the change after a few years. But, um, it was a, it was a big thing because, you know, I had, I had worked, uh, I don't know. I had, I had been around uh, wineries. Uh, my family was not especially big in wineries. Uh, they liked wine, but not great wine. Uh, my grandfather loved great wine and had books on wine and stuff. And uh, when I was young, you know, I occasionally saw a bottle of really good wine, but I think he didn't want to share it with my parents because they didn't appreciate it. Um, so I think ultimately, um, you know, I, I was, I, I really believed that, that the wine business was something I really loved to do. I loved the agriculture. I loved the seasonality. I loved the essence of it, which is, you know, it's a beverage that brings people together and breaks down barriers. And I, I remember, uh, I don't know. Uh, after I was at Davis, I went through the brewing program too, and I was at a brewing conference. And um, I'm trying to remember who it was that was speaking. And uh, she was speaking to a bunch of brewers, and she talked about the um, she talked about the beauty of what they did, what brewers did. You know that you're. You know, you're bringing people together that normally would be, you know, standoffish and, you know, and she said it so eloquently and, um, gosh, I, I'm, just kill me, I can't remember her name right now. Um, anyway, English wine writer, 
and at the end of it, you know, this this group of brewers is like, you know, sobbing and, oh, I love you, man. And, you know, it's just, it really was the essence of what brewing and winemaking does at its best. Um, you know, it's a craft that we are lucky enough to call our vocation mm-hmm. and and that we can make something that is the, especially in wine, you know, kind of the, the complete history of that moment in time and that time, that place in space, you know, Oregon or California or France or wherever. And that people are sharing that and, and able to look at that moment in time and it helps them both to you know, kind of memorialize that moment, but also to lower their guard and and be our most human and and to kind of relax a little bit so that you can talk. And that, I mean, to me, that's the the ultimate is that a bottle of my wine can can help people to communicate on a on a more profound level. And you know. Um, it's it's a, a beautiful addition to life. So the Jancis Jancis Robinson? Bingo. So um now I'm embarrassed that that's on film, but she'll never watch this, so I'm okay. <laughs> um but yeah, and uh so I went to I went to Davis um not really uh not really knowing a whole lot of what was expected, but I, I went up there. I had, I had actually worked harvest. I took a fall off, and I had a friend that was in the wine buying business, uh, and I went and stayed with his family in Sonoma. And he said, "Come up, you know, stay a few weeks, work harvest at all these different places, and you know, hopefully that'll help you figure out what you want to do." And it was. You know, he was the older brother of a girl I had dated in high school, and and uh, I went out and stayed with him. And the very first place I went was um, oh uh, gosh, uh, man, now I'm really not the young guy. Um, uh, was was in Sonoma was Glen Ellen, and I remember being at Glen Ellen when the whole family was there. And it was such a beautiful example of, you know, uh, multi-generational family working towards something together. And it was just beautiful. And um, I was enchanted. I was totally enchanted. You know, working on the processing line, which wasn't much, you know, it was a, a plywood sheet painted with food grade white paint or something. And there were 12 of us, you know, pushing everything down the line. Um, And I don't know, it just really took off. And then I went to uh, Goodlock Bunchu and uh, multiple winemakers were working there, uh, you know, renting a little space or a little time on the equipment. And it really started me thinking about that. Helen Turley was there then. Uh, I remember sitting with her and, you know, I didn't, at that time, it, it probably took years before she was even, uh, you know, 
<laughs> famous, but but the fact that this woman would take the time to talk to me about, you know, well, kid, it's not such a shitty option uh, for for a life choice, and and um, you know, just kind of talking about um, and seeing the people that were in the business, and that was really. Uh, Amazing, and I, you know, I had this love of wine, but I'd never really seen the production side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, that fall was really the fall that did it for me. And that must have been, um, I don't know, uh, '84 or something like that. Um, and then I put in the application to Davis and. Uh, I went the next spring, uh, transferred at Easter uh, from UC Santa Barbara to UC Davis, and um, I'm a skier, and I had I had spent a winter, uh, you know, teaching uh, skiing and working at a ski resort, and um, I had met some folks there that were from Davis, and they're like, oh yeah, you know, come live at our fraternity and and you know I had no idea what I was getting into I wasn't into the Greek stuff and um, I pulled up uh, Easter week at Davis and you know I'm driving this little Subaru from the 70s and I pulled into the parking lot and there were all these pickup trucks and I remember being able to look underneath them and I was uh, <laughs> I was suddenly uh, a, what they called a termite. I was somebody who lived in the house, uh, who didn't uh, didn't really uh, participate in in Greek life, and uh, I had uh, become part of the Alpha Gamma Rho, the agricultural fraternity at UC Davis, uh, which was both uh, funny uh, and I don't know. Uh, it opened my eyes a bit, but that's where I started. Um, there was one other fellow that was a member there that had come up from California and was a wine guy. Uh, and you would probably know uh, who it is. And um, he, wa- he was a winemaker, John, I want to say Guerrero, uh, down at, at Valley View, Southern Oregon, Things probably 30 years ago or so. Anyway, you know, he was the only person I knew in Oregon. Uh, but you know he had told me about how great it was and i was you know i was really intrigued um but not completely sold on oregon at that point um i ended up uh you know going through the program at davis and uh one of my roommates uh brian carlson uh who's now making wine i believe in michigan uh but uh, he was from Oregon and uh, kept talking about Oregon wines and Oregon wines and Oregon wines. And uh, we were in a tasting group at Davis. And, you know, it was pretty funny looking back on it now, especially with kids that are in college. And, you know, you have limited money. And yet we were all part of this group that was really trying to figure out about wine and feeling uh, that our money was best spent to buy good wine so that we could know what the rest of the world was doing. Mm -hmm. And so there were times where we would, 
you know, eat top ramen, but then go drink Romani Conti or something at a, you know, at a, at a tasting. And at one of these tastings, uh, Brian brought down a bunch of the Oregon Pinot Noirs uh, from 1983, uh, which was a great year in Oregon. And there was kind of just this collective silence as we all sat there and smelled these wines and looked at these wines. And I think for most of us, you know, that was the first time that we had ever really tasted Oregon. And, you know, it was, it was a holy shit moment. And, uh, and we all kind of left that thinking differently about Oregon, that it was not just this green, beautiful place that some of us had driven through and one of us was from, but it was this place that could be a future for Oregon, or for winemaking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, much like the people that had come a decade and a half before, you know, the first pioneers of Oregon, or the, I guess, officially the, the second wave, but the first one that stuck, um, a lot of us were blown away by what we tasted. You know, that these wines had distinctiveness and complexity and power and elegance and good acidity and balance. And they were in many ways um, reminiscent of maybe what we idealized about Burgundy Mm -hmm. um, without, you know, they definitely weren't Burgundy, but they were the closest thing we had ever seen to it. You know, growing up in California, even in the wine business or restaurant business in California, you know, I never tasted anything that had this, the kind of vibrancy that I tasted that night. Um, The kind of balance and acidity and yet, I don't know, you know, it wasn't about the alcohol, which is what so much of what the New World wines were about. Um, It was about... I don't know. It was about the place. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that, that, was, that was what stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And um, it was kind of funny. You know, I always thought that, um, well, my, my roommate, you know, wanted to come back to Oregon and um, have a little winery and, you know, make 100 barrels of wine or whatever. And grow his own grapes and and I kind of thought of that and thought oh that's so quaint you know and and I just didn't give it a real um, I just didn't consider that as a possibility and I think that um, I don't know uh, <laughs> maybe it was Californian exceptionalism <laughs> um, that that we really, um, or I really just sort of blew it off, but I was really intrigued by Oregon. And so I wanted to come up here, uh, and I ended up, you know, graduating from Davis after, you know, numerous times of dropping in and dropping out, and, um, you know, earning, going off to travel, um, you know, to basically use the recommendation and the door opening ability of being a student at Davis and being specifically a student of Roger Bolton's or Ann Noble's 
um, opened a lot of doors around the world. And so I went off and I would take off for a couple of terms and go work in Australia or to go travel in Europe. And, and um, you know, um, that was a great part of Davis, especially back then, um, was the ability to kind of open doors around the world because it was perceived and as such a, a high, I don't know, I don't know. It it just it was really viewed favorably, and it was a great school and a great education. Um, I think that there's a lot of places like that now, which is great. Um, but it opened a lot of doors for me. Um, moving around the world, I could work, I could earn money, and. Uh, finish harvest with a bunch of cash and then go back to school for a bit. And it's funny, even to this day, I still, you know, see people and, you know, classmates. It's unusual, I think, for most majors that you keep seeing your classmates from college. And I do, and I still get calls and, you know, emails and so on. And they're like, yeah, we were in the same class. And it's like, what year did you graduate? And it's like, I think there's a group of about five years that they all think I was in their class. So, you know, I was there and then I wasn't. And then I was there and then I wasn't. I, I couldn't tell you other than that one roommate that uh, I graduated with, um, I couldn't tell you who's in my class from back then. You know, there were like seven of us that graduated that year from Davis. But I know so many people because I was in and out of the program for so long. Um, I did the brewing, I did uh, winemaking. I worked for Ann Noble for, I think, two and a half years in her sensory lab, uh, which was life-changing uh, in terms of kind of looking at wine so scientifically and kind of pulling it apart. And it's it's kind of especially fitting, I think, that um, when I went, when I was working that first harvest in Sonoma, you know, part of my research that time was to go to Davis and talk to people and see. And I showed up in Ann Noble's office and she's like, you know, she was pretty gruff. <laughs> okay, who are you? What do you want to know? Do you, well, do you want to knowledge your viticulture? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I want to make wine, you know. And, and um, anyway, working in her lab really um, made me think about wine differently. And I think oftentimes that my way of thinking about wine is uh, so impacted by that experience that I look at wine and I look at taste and smell and texture and you know your your mental processing of all that um as a you know as a you know you can see that that came directly out of that time working there tasting and setting up tastings for people yeah it's one of my frogs <laughs> yeah no there's a bunch of them and you know if 
if you actually look at, uh, if you actually look at, uh, I don't know, you talk to any Frenchman, a frog in the cellar is considered really good luck. So I, I do everything I can to keep them safe. So, you know, uh, I, I went through the program there. I worked with Roger Bolton quite a bit, um, who was a big uh, force. I don't know, uh, a big Im- had a big impact on me as an Australian. And when I was talking about going out and working around the world, and he's like, well, you know, you, you have to go to Australia. I mean, it's, you know, you get two a year. You can work Southern and Northern. And, and so it was real obvious to him that that's where I needed to go. And when I did that the first time, you know, um, it wasn't very common. I mean... You know, uh, it was writing letters and maybe making calls, but it was pretty unusual uh, to go down and work down under and then come back and work here. And and at one point, um, I worked four harvest in a in a 12 month period. And I I started in Napa with harvest at Sparkling Wine at Domain Mum at their brand new facility back then, brand new. Uh, it's probably 35 years old now. I don't know. Um, and then from there, I came to Rex Hill. No, from there, I went to uh, Stag's Leap uh, and worked the red wine harvest. And then I finished that, and I was up in Oregon uh, for the Oregon harvest at Rex Hill. That was 87. That was the first harvest that Lynn um, Penarash was here. And... Um, <laughs> way back when, and uh, I was her enologist at Rex Hill in 87. Wow, that's a long time ago. Um, and uh, anyway, um, I was pretty stuck at that point. Um, when I came up here, you know, I brought my bike. I didn't have a car. Um, I worked harvest. It was an exceptionally dry fall in Oregon, and you know, very rarely did I get rained on, you know, riding my bike everywhere. It was, you know, it was not a problem. And it gave me this idea of what Oregon was like that was a little incorrect. Um, <laughs> but I, I met, uh, you know, I met a ton of people in Oregon uh, that year. Um, kind of ironic that I didn't meet anyone in Washington County, like where we are now, sitting in the old, the original Ponzi Estate Winery. Um, I didn't meet the Ponzi's. I didn't meet any of them, uh, including the one that is now my wife of 25 years, uh, Louisa, um, because it was just too damn hard to get up and over Shehalem Mountain on a bicycle, and I just wasn't that energetic. I could get to the top of the Dundee Hills, no problem, um, but getting over to Washington County was just not going to work. and. Anyway, I left Oregon uh, after the first of the year and headed to Western Australia and worked uh, at uh, Cullen's, uh, Cullen's Willybrook Wines in WA, uh, one of the pioneers out there, and uh, was kind of taken again by uh, the industry and the beauty of the industry and the smallness of the industry and the amazing intertwined connections of the industry. Um, the family that founded Cullen's, um, you know, had a daughter who was then the winemaker, Vanya. She's still there. 
but Vanya trained as an opera singer and <laughs> and uh, one of those connections was she sang at the wedding of Veronique Druan in Bone. And, you know, I had met Veronique here and then I go there and I meet Vanya. And anyway, the world kept getting smaller and smaller and kind of more lovely and more lovely. And um, it still feels that way to me today, um, which is, I feel totally blessed to be able to be a part of it. Um, so I worked around, I worked there, I ended up finishing at Davis at some point, uh, worked in Napa for a while, a few jobs, went to work at uh, Shalone Vineyard, got a phone call from Dick Graff, one of the, I don't know, icons of winemaking in America, especially, you know, if you kind of know the history of the 70s. You know, he had worked at Romani Conti. He was a, uh, I think he was a Harvard guy and kind of a crazy man. And, and uh, you know, for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay producing in California, you know, he had done some really amazing things. And one day I got a phone call during bottling and I'm frantic up in Napa at a now defunct winery called uh, St. Andrews. And he, you know, I get this phone call and it's the bottling line's going and it's going, hi, you know, this is Dick Graff. And it's like the Dick Graff. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so we start talking and anyway, he said that he had talked to a number of people and my name kept coming up for a job at Shalone, which was in Monterey County, about 80 miles from where I was born and uh, wanted to talk to me. And, and uh, he flew into Napa that night and we met in the bar and, and uh, at the Napa airport and he hired me. And, and then I went to Shalone, which was fantastic on so many levels. Um, to look at Pinot Noir and do Pinot Noir and, and uh, you know, uh, from there kind of hopped. Uh, I was there for four years and then went to, uh, I took a job from Tony Soder at Etude and uh, it was pretty funny because I was all set to move to Oregon and and actually uh, Tony offered the job and I said, you know, I think I've I've got to go to Oregon. It's where I belong, and and <laughs> and Tony's kind of um, calm and thoughtful manner. He said, "Well, okay, you know, um, but I'm going to go ahead and just let you know that there'll be, you know, I'm not going to fill this job for six weeks, and you do what you need to do, but just know." And I came up here and I was supposed to uh, make my, I was, I was supposed to work at a winery called Veritas. Uh, and I showed up, I think in March or April of that year and Veritas sold to an unknown guy, Harry Peterson Nedry. Uh, and Veritas became Shehalem. And so my opportunity to make my own wine that year uh, evaporated because I didn't know Harry. I knew 
the guy who owned Veritas, and I was supposed to work and make my own wine, and and so I didn't, and that was '94, uh, I guess, um, and trying to throw out some dates and names so that there's contact points that can be followed. Uh, if anyone other than myself and my family watch this. Uh, um, and so I went ahead and called Tony back and said, you know, that job you offered. And so I went back to Napa for a year. And it just, I kept flying back up here and coming back up here. Um, one of my last things I did at Shalom before I left was, you know, I had been on vacation up here and had accrued a lot of overtime and uh, a ridiculous amount of overtime. And so I was given an extra long vacation. And so I came to Oregon to go fly fishing and and was going to try and fish every river in Oregon, uh, you know, or some crazy thing. And, and um, so I got up here and I'm fishing and it's July, you know, going into August or whatever. And then I just called to check in, and it turned out that my boss couldn't uh, couldn't make it to an event in Oregon, and would I go ahead and just go? And and that was uh, initially it was going to be just the uh, Steamboat Winemakers Conference, and then it morphed into IPNC also, and I was so annoyed that I had to <laughs> that I had to cut my fishing short to go on this you know, these damn business things. Um, but the Steamboat Conference uh, was, uh, it's not hyperbole to say life-changing. Um, Steamboat for, I imagine anyone watching this, you know what Steamboat is, but the, the essence of Steamboat was, it was a conference at a fly fishing lodge on the North Umpqua River, um, that brought together a whole bunch of people who make Pinot Noir and love Pinot Noir. And unlike anything prior to that time, uh, was the opposite of a beauty contest where you bring your beautiful wines to be loved. Um, Steamboat, you brought your worst possible wine to be dissected. And the idea was you brought your, your problem children from the last vintage and you, you know, you wrote up all the analysis on everything you had about them. And then they were served blind at eight o'clock in the morning. And you dissected them in groups of eight or ten people around a table uh, in anonymity. And you said what was wrong with them and what you would do to fix them. And... You know, this got to be about 70 people a year that would show up there. And it was Pinot Noir winemakers from everywhere, everywhere that makes Pinot Noir. Um, you know, all of the usual suspects of, you know, Oregon, Burgundy, California, uh, New Zealand, Italy, Germany, France, Austria, England, Israel. Um you know, Michigan. I mean, no offense, Lee Lutz. I know you're out there, but, um, you know, uh, it was people from everywhere. And you would sit there and really focus on these wines. And 
I love the camaraderie of it. I love the tasting. I mean, it really appealed to me from my time at Davis as a technical taster. Um, and, uh, and I would taste the wines and I would go through all the things I smelled in them and all the textures I felt in them and all the, you know, very Davis-like in my analysis and very complete. And the very first day at the very first table, one of the very first wines served was a wine from Oregon. And um, I described it as having the salty iodine-like freshness of a Miyagi oyster. And the woman sitting across from me looked at me and she knew it was her wine. And so we kind of discussed for a minute and then she, her first thing she said, I'm, you know, I can be bleeped on this, but the first thing I remember hearing was, what the fuck do you know? You're trying to make Pinot Noir in California. <laughs> and uh, anyway, 25 years, four kids, a bunch of businesses later, um, it's fair to say that was uh, Luisa Ponzi. And, you know, trained in Burgundy, and uh, we have always uh, looked at each other um, <laughs> in a number of ways. But one of them for sure is the first person and maybe the last person we call when we encounter a problem with our wines. You know, she can sit there and call me a Davis technocrat, and I can say she's a Burgundian lemming. Um, but the bottom line is there's a lot of ways to learn what you learn. And that again, that's one of the things that I find so amazing about Oregon, that we have people with degrees and degrees and advanced degrees, and we have people that just learned it from doing it for their whole life, and their father learned it in their life, and so on. And there's a lot of ways to do things, and I'm, I love that, and I love constantly talking to people and finding, oh my God, I hadn't even thought of doing it that way. And it's, it's one of the things I love about the wine business is all the, you know, as we're young and, and searching, you know, uh, I think especially in Oregon, but I think around the world with small producers, there's a, there's much more an interest in helping and giving a hand up and mentoring as opposed to worrying about somebody stealing your secrets. And I think, you know, Zelma Long was quoted as saying, you know, there's a thousand decisions that go into a bottle of wine. And I think that that was so, uh, uh, such a huge understatement that, um, you know, there's, I don't know, there's a gazillion uh, decisions that you have to make to go into a bottle of wine. And if you don't make them, they'll make themselves. Um, but I don't know, I, I think it's really interesting to kind of look at winemaking as, a, as an experiential thing that people, uh, they can go to school and they can get a bunch of knowledge really quickly and that's great. And maybe that opens some doors for you. Um, you know, uh, I worked for Mandavi for a while as a research enologist and, you know, I think to get hired on at Mandavi, you know, back in the 80s, you know, if you didn't have a degree from Davis, you weren't considered. Um, and I think that, you know, all that's changed. 
Um, it's pretty interesting because I think that the people that if we look back, especially in Oregon, it's pretty easy to see, yeah, okay, this, this guy went to Davis and this guy went to Davis or this woman or whatever, but there's so much, so many other people that came up that have added to the story that didn't have a formal education in wine. And, um, and that adds to it. So, so we, had, we had left off and you had, you had come to Oregon, but only briefly, and then gone back to work for Tony Soder. So at what point did yeah. you come back to Oregon for, for good? The next, the next year. Um, you know, uh, I knew Oregon was where I wanted to be. Um, uh, I, had met, I had met that crazy Oregon winemaker who didn't have a high impression of California Pinot Noir. Um, in August of 93 and uh, we had been hanging out and spending a lot of time and over the next year um, I think uh, at least two if not more weekends a month one of us was I was coming north or she was coming south and I think I don't know. We always talked about a lot of things. We didn't really talk about winemaking at that point. And I, I think that, you know, one of the biggest surprises to Louisa was when we walked in to salute together uh, that fall um, of 93. And I, it was at, held at uh, uh, Atwaters uh, in Portland. And we got out of the elevator and... As I walked in the room, all these people kept saying, "Hey, Eric! Hey, Eric!" And I'd stop and I'd talk, and and you know, by the time we got to her table, it's just like, "How the hell do you know everyone here?" And and it was really, it was kind of funny. Um, I had been uh, coming to Oregon quite a bit in the previous four years, and um, had actually been in Oregon. Gosh, that was. That was November. I had probably been in Oregon 12 times that year. Um, I had talked with Peter Kircher, who started uh, Golden Valley Brewing, and had looked at uh, doing that, because somehow Peter got a hold of me. I was on some list of brewers slash winemakers and people that were interested in Pinot Noir, and so Peter had called me when I was at Shalone, and. I had come up here numerous times and uh, I don't know, I'd just been looking at every opportunity to move to Oregon. And um, that night going into Salute and she's like, you've actually been thinking about this. And it's like, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, one of the people that I continued to talk to and keep in touch with was Hal Medici and the Medici Vineyard in Newburgh. And I had kind of kept in touch with Hal and Dottie uh, from when I worked up here in 87. And, uh, you know, one of the older vineyards uh, overlooking Newburgh. And, you know, Hal had this huge barn, huge barn, that was really a parking garage for uh, vehicles and boats and I don't know, uh, everything else you put in a barn. 
And he had mentioned to me a number of times that he wanted to start a winery. And so we started talking about, you know, setting up a, a winery on his property in Newburgh. And uh, Hal <laughs> has always been difficult to get to commit to, to uh, anything other than just an opinion. And uh, so to get him to go ahead and move forward was, um, you know, a little bit dramatic, I think, is not an understatement. But ultimately, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, I want to start a winery, you know, and he has this beautiful vineyard there. And so um, he commits to it and we start working towards that. And, um, and so, you know, I think it was obvious to Tony that my heart was not in Napa and that Oregon was where I wanted to be. And so I, I said I was leaving and coming back. And so I was in Napa that time, just about a year. And by the harvest of 95, uh, we had transformed house farm parking garage into a winery. And, uh, you know, uh, that in itself was pretty funny because Hal, as a, you know, he's, you know, again, the, the cross connections of the industry. Hal had worked at PCC as a math teacher, uh, as a math teacher and worked with Dick Ponzi. And, you know, um, anyway, Hal was a do-it-yourselfer and is a do-it-yourselfer. And, and uh, I hope he's not doing as much these days as he used to. But, um, you know, he built this humongous building that's probably, I don't know, the, top, the bottom and top floor, maybe 5,000, 6,000 square feet. And he built it, as, you know, on weekends and evenings by himself and... And I remember being in the interview with the, um, at that point, the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and they're trying, you know, part of what they're doing is figuring out where the money came from and trying to keep, you know, this, <laughs> this uh, idea of making alcohol clean, you know, they're in many ways, I think, still stuck back in the, you know, times of prohibition and so on. But anyway, they're like, so how much money did you spend on this building and how says, well, I don't know, a bunch. And and they're like, well, when did you start building? And it's like, well, you know, a long time ago. Well, who who built it? Well, mostly me. And this this investigator is like, buddy, I need a straight answer. You know, where'd the money come from? And he's like, well, it came from me. And well, do you have receipts? Hell no, I don't have receipts, you know? It's like I would buy something and then I would work on it. And, you know, and uh, it was pretty funny. And anyway, we got the winery open. Um, it was kind of, uh, it was a big deal. Um, you know, I was going to make wine for Medici out of his vineyard. I was going to make wine and start my winery for Hamaker. It's 1995. Um, I met this guy in a vineyard that I was looking at named Dean Fisher, uh, who went on to found Adia. I mean, at first he was Fisher Family Cellars, but that ran afoul of the, the lawyers from Fisher Winery in Sonoma and Fisher Carriages. And anyway, Dean was a welder and lived in Gaston, and I was moving up, and 
Louisa lived in Gaston and anyway, Dean and I got to talking and he wanted to make wine and I wanted to make wine and uh, I introduced him to Hal and, and so we decided that the three of us would make wine at Medici that year. And uh, Dean as a welder was building all kinds of contraptions, you know, mostly uh, you know, mostly outfitting power trucks with lifts and stuff. And, and uh, so I said, you know, can you build something like to dump grapes? Because I was kind of struck coming from California where the process of winemaking was much more kind of continuous flow and, and bigger. And Oregon, it was so small. And that, you know, what you saw was somebody jumping on an old forklift and getting up and tilting a bin over and then somebody using a rake. And, and so Dean and I started talking about things and he came up with this design of using a hydraulic lift that you put a bin in and then the lift would dump, you know, it could be controlled and there was a sorting line and... And this was pretty cutting edge stuff in 95. And uh, so, you know, he built this big old thing that we could stick the, what was then considered the standard fermenter for Oregon. Um, the kind of old nut bins with a, with a plastic sleeve inserted. So a wooden four by four bin. And that was the classic Oregon fermenter that you know, when I came up and worked at, you know, hung out with Louisa in 93, that's all they had were these old plywood bins that would hold, I don't know, two tons of nuts or something. And that they had plastic in it and then you'd put your fruit in and it would ferment in there. And, and that was your fermentation tank. And coming from California with a lot of, you know, at least the land with a lot of money, not that I had it, but um, I thought that that was really kind of, well, uh, quaint, um, but uh, shocking. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was the standard though. There were very few places that were using larger tanks and very few places that were using stainless steel. I mean, obviously the larger tanks were stainless steel. Um, for the most part, but I, I thought that it was really, it was just so different from anything that I had experienced in California or Australia or anywhere else. And um, I remember in the other part of it was like 93 was a really cold harvest. And I remember being here in this building and the the fermentations were all outside in a covered area, but they were outside and I remember being here and it's like midnight and late in harvest and there's ice on the ground, you know, where somebody had cleaned up earlier, but it's midnight now and it's below freezing and there's ice. And, you know, they're trying to figure out, okay, you know, let's call it a night. And I'm standing there it just dumbstruck by, oh my God, there's ice on the ground. You know, what the hell? And and then my Davis brain is going, oh my God, the wine, the wine, it's not a temperature, you know? And, and really looking at this whole thing and, and Dick and Louisa are, are coming up with things like, 
well, maybe we could make some sort of a pillow on top that will keep some of that heat in there, you know, and, and they're going, well, the wood gives some insulation. And I'm going, oh my God, oh my God, <laughs> you know, and, and really kind of shocked at the whole thing. And yet there was no denying the quality of the wines that I had tasted from here. And I, it was amazing. And so um, anyway, a couple of years later, Dean builds this uh, crazy elevated structure. Uh, he built one first, I think, for Michael at Beaufrere. And then he built one for Hal. And um, on Hal's, we modified it. So he put a conveyor belt, which was really like high tech. Um, you know, to move the fruit down. And uh, I started working at Dean's shop, learning to uh, hack weld. Um, actually, I learned to grind a lot at, at uh, Dean's shop more than I learned to weld because my welding was so bad. But one of the things that I did was I bought a, a press, you know, like a 40-year-old press, from a winery down in Healdsburg, and I brought it up, and it was for Medici, and I took it to Dean's place, and completely took it apart. It was an old Wilmus, like WP fourteen hundred or something, and you know, kind of bomb-proof, very simple old-style press with a bladder in the middle that you controlled the pressure on, and everything was pretty much manual. But this had been sitting in a vineyard for decades, you know, and uh, so I brought it to Dean's and I, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But Dean kind of said, well, you, you want to pop out that stainless steel and, you know, I would start with, you know, grinding off those welds and then it, it'll push out and it's going to be spring loaded. Be careful. And it's like I have no idea. And literally I'm sitting there and all of a sudden, you know, I'm pushing on it and this stainless steel screen pops out of there at 100 miles an hour and whoa really lucky that didn't hit me and <laughs> and uh, so i take this thing apart and and really dean you know kind of wandering by every once in a while going oh it looks like you need a grinder oh i'd cut that off oh yeah and um, so we break this thing down and then get it you know sandblasted and and then repainted and put back together and uh, <laughs> this must have been i don't know august or something before that harvest and i'm working late because the grapes are getting ripe and we got to get shit done and ready and and i'm over in dean's shop and the last thing i need to do is i need to get this long you know balloon like bladder in place and I've got to push this big long steel four inch pipe from one end to the other and I'm working in there and I've got a hoist with a you know a lift that this chain is going down and I'm sitting inside this cylinder with the top open on this press and I've pushed this thing in but I can't get it up into place and I'm impatient and it's middle of the night and and I'm sitting in there underneath this thing. I think if I get under, I can just push it up and and I get stuck. And I'm so worn out that I can't move and there's no one left in the shop and I'm 
thinking, oh, I am, I'm going to die in here. You know, they're going to find me tomorrow. And, and, and all of a sudden I hear this, oh, is there anybody here? And it's Mike Etzel. And, and then I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, I'm here, I'm here. And he's like, where? Who is that? You know, and pretty soon Michael comes over and he, you know, he sits there and he, you know, lifts this thing up using the hoist and, uh, you know, he helps me get it put in and we get it seated and, you know, we're all set. And, you know, I think back at that and that, that's so the way Oregon has always worked. And another one of the reasons that I, I love Oregon and I love the Oregon wine industry is that it has over its entire life been filled with these moments of serendipity, synchronicity, I don't know, you know, and goodwill, um, and goodwill. And, um, you know, that was just one of a thousand that I could talk about, um, but it really fits. And we got that press put together and got it over to, Medici's, and then we brought the the processing line over, but the place where it was supposed to go was not uh, <laughs> was not done yet because we were adding on an extra section, and Hal moved kind of slowly on that, and so we, you know, fruit was coming. We had to get it ready to go, and and so Dean brought a welder or a cutter over, and you know, we bring this huge crane to lift this damn thing which is you know it's eight feet tall it's 20 feet long it's got a crusher on or destimmer on one end and you know it's a tremendous amount of weight and we brought this huge crane in and it lifts it over and it wouldn't fit in the front door we were going to stick it in the front door so that we could you know load it somehow and and we built you know with tiles and 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 uh, concrete block and gravel this spot and then we put plywood down on it so that the forklift could make this u-turn out on this elevated platform and put the the fruit up on the end of this processing line and then we could process but it would dump and the table was right under the the top of the door and so the table could you know the fruit could go in but we had to cut the arms off uh, so that we could fit it in there because we literally had no other flat place to do it that first year. And it was just a mess, but we did it. And that, again, is another Oregon story of people just by hook or by crook making it work. And um, so we made wine there for a couple of years till we really kind of I don't know, drove each other crazy and we all had to go find our separate corners. Um, but yeah, uh, we did that uh, in, gosh, um, I moved, I was there 95, 96, maybe 97. Um, and then I think I moved to Adelsheim. They had extra space and um, you know, they had built a beautiful new winery and had extra space. And so Hal and I were going to kill each other. And 
<laughs> so, so it became obvious that I needed to, to, uh, to move. Kind of a funny story. What, what ultimately got me was I was bottling, and I had a bottling line there and a bunch of people that I was paying, and, and the wind's blowing, and it's like hurricane force crazy winds, and you know we're trying to cover the, the bottling line area with tarps and the winds picking us up literally you know it was just a mess and and uh, Hal keeps coming by and it's his property and he's wanting to talk to people because he's an old Italian guy and wants to come talk and I keep saying Hal you know you can't talk we gotta just we gotta keep moving we gotta you know you can't talk to this guy well he's on my property well I'm paying him and uh, anyway uh, so we get into this, and finally, I, you know, I'm just livid, you know, immature, uh, poor, and uh, I'm looking at Hal spending my money and driving me crazy, and so I probably not very nicely said, you need to get the hell out of here, or worse. And so Dean's there, and Dean says, come on, Hal, let's go to lunch. So Hal's like, okay. And so they go, and they get in the car, and... As they're driving by to leave, Hal says, hold on, i got to get one more thing. And the one more thing was my you know, goat, I guess. Uh, he walked straight over to the guy he'd been talking to and asked him a couple more questions. <laughs> and and I'm, I just like, boom, blew the top of my head off. And Hal just smiled and walked away. And I was like, okay, i got to get out of here. And uh, so... Adelsheim was my next stop, and um, then and that worked out pretty well. Um, that was gosh, when was that? Now I may be getting mixed up. Um, yeah, Adelsheim was next stop, and then uh, I was there for a year, maybe two, and then. Eric Lemelson I had met, and uh, he was wanting to build a winery, and uh, so we had talked uh, about me helping him with that. And, you know, pretty interesting guy, pretty interesting story. And uh, so I kind of signed on to that project, and he was kind of hanging around and and uh, learning about winemaking and helping out. and. Um, and then worked with him for a bit to go ahead and put his winery together. And, you know, uh, our only deal was, you know, I would give the, how something affected the wine, but I, I just couldn't fathom the money. And so I said, I, you know, I can, I can design things and I can say how it affects wine, wine quality, but I can't talk about price. And and so that was kind of how we worked, and ultimately, you know, built a beautiful winery with kind of a uh, a fitting, crazy piece of equipment that really fit with the story of Lemelsen. And I'll leave that for other people to explore. But it's, you know, that processing equipment was really. Um, in lieu of another floor on the winery, and um, it fit with where, you know, what Eric's father had done in terms of invention, and there were so many parts of 
that project and that processing line that literally up until they built that professors of metallurgy said that couldn't be done the way that they built that and the rings of stainless steel being bent and so on. So that was a really amazing time and fun to be a part of. And then um, then I was approached by a guy named, um, uh, just thinking about this time. And so, um, is so sad and happy uh, by Ned Lumpkin and Ned and Kirsten. And Ned is um, not doing well health-wise today, and I guess that's why thinking about it is kind of hard. Um, but we've been partners at the Winemaker Studio, Carlton Winemaker Studio, uh, for 20 years. And uh, we first met when Ned called me and said, you know, I hear that you make wine and I want to build a winery. And and I'd had a lot of people kind of approach me with the idea of becoming partners. And I didn't want, I didn't want a partner in my winery. And because I wanted to make choices that were not necessarily easy to see for a lot of people. And so I felt I needed to keep it small. And Ned said, no, you know, I want to be partners in a facility. And what Ned had was a vineyard that he had planted, Lazy River, outside of Yamhill. And he had been a contractor um, in Seattle and had been incredibly successful in, in the contracting. And he saw that he needed to build a facility that could, uh, you know, where he could make his wine. And he had seen the numbers that building a facility for yourself didn't work. The economics didn't work. And so a mutual friend, um, in Seattle introduced us and um, I went out to meet him one day and and uh, you know we had a lunch uh, that his wife Kirsten made in their vineyard shed at the top of their vineyard and it was a you know nasty cold Oregon wet winter blowy day and you know we drove all the way up there and I'm just thinking what the hell am I doing? You know, I'm so cold and wet and this is ridiculous. And we get up to this little vineyard, you know, tractor shed and to the side of it is this other small building that would fit two of these tables maybe. And he opens the door and says, we're here. And Kirsten turns to me and, and smiles and says, oh, good, I've got the soup ready. And I'm looking and I'm really just shocked. And they've got this little wood stove in there and it's a table with benches around it and she's cooking soup and has bread and a bottle of wine. And I was just like, oh, thank God I'm out of the rain, you know, and thank God I'm here. And... um. And so we talked, and that was the start of the Carlton Winemaker Studio. 
Uh, we didn't know it was going to be in Carleton or be called that or anything, but we realized that we both needed a winery and that we both had small wineries that we wanted some control over their future. And that I was very clear that moving around to other wineries really affected your wine making because you're constantly going from big tanks to little tanks to tall skinny tanks to fat you know tanks and and that your quality changes the character changes as you change all these things and really wanting to build a winery to build a place that my winery could be consistent and that what I pitched to them was that to build a good winery, to be able to control temperature on our ferments and all this stuff, we had to come up with a different way than what was the standard, which was taking out huge loans and then, you know, trying to pay the bank and essentially having a banker in your lap as you made every decision on on your wine and so that became kind of our starting point um, they had a lot of experience in construction i had a lot of experience in wine and wine making you know over 15 harvests at that point um, and uh, I think that that was our where we started thinking about how the hell do we do this? And the idea of kind of the tech incubator style thing of, you know, somebody shows up with a good idea and the sweat of their brow, but everything else is there. All the equipment they need is there is where we started. Mm -hmm. And I was coming home from a friend's art studio, uh, Ray and Jerry Grimm, a pretty famous artist couple in Portland uh, in ceramics and glass. And, and anyway, they had a studio called the Thurman Street Studio. And I was coming home from an event there. And this studio had all these different artists that... Um, you know, some were painters, some were ceramicists, others were doing other things. But the idea was that they were all in this one space and they all had a little space of their own there and then a common space that they could use for selling or other things when they needed more room. And that was really kind of what I was thinking about. You know, at Etude, we had done a bit of that down in California. We had you know, at our, our, our winery there, you know, we had maybe five wineries working together, but they were, you know, a winery doing Pinot Noir and Carneros and a winery doing Syrah in, you know, up in Oakville or up in Calistoga, you know, or Cabernet in, you know, somewhere else in the valley or Merlot. And so everyone was doing different things. And so the wines were coming in at different times. And so we ended up with a very long harvest period, but it's like now would be the time you're doing winery X and then you do winery Y and so on. 
And so that's what my thinking was, is that we would, you know, we could do this. You know, we had different people getting wine or grapes from different areas. And that's what we set about trying to do. It was short-sighted and <laughs> small, to say the least. Um, you know, uh, we set out to make a winery that would be able to produce 20,000 cases. And, you know, the idea was that each winery at the studio, totally named after the Thurman Street Studio, the Carlton Winemaker's Studio, it wasn't about having my name or Ned's name on the door. It was about all of the wineries having a home that could be their real home and that they could feel like it was um, theirs and, and that they could come and go and that we didn't have crazy restrictions like I had seen in many of the common production facilities in Napa where you needed 24 hours to come visit your wine and that you couldn't, you couldn't work on your own wine. You had to have the wineries, wineries work on your wine and we wanted something totally different. And I was told, we were told, we went down to Napa, we went to a lot of the, the custom crush facilities and we were told that, you know, it'll never fly. You know, it's, it'll never fly. And we just said, no, it's different. You know, Oregon's different. We are, you know, this will work. And so that's what we moved forward with and we broke ground on this studio in, I think it was like March 14th of 2002. And we broke ground on this piece of ground uh, 200 yards off Highway 99 off of Lincoln Street on the northern edge towards Yamhill. And, you know, it was an empty piece of it, quote, industrial pro property there. And that's where we decided to go. And, and, and the first day, you know, it was me and a guy in a bulldozer out there and it started snowing. <laughs> it was March. And, and that was our start. And then Ned was mostly in Seattle. Uh, we had a builder named John Coster and he was kind of like the get it done guy and we would have these morning meetings talking about the studio the building and you know i would run around take pictures send them to ned in the afternoon of what we got done that day and then we would meet and we would talk and you know uh, he ran it like a military operation and uh, we built it uh, we processed our first grapes somewhere around the 18th of September of that year. Um, we didn't have the tasting room done. It was there, but it was not built out. But we were operational and we had heat and electricity and water. And the week that we started harvest, we had new wineries that were moving in and they were moving bulk wine from their previous home in. We had wineries that were bottling wines from the previous year or years. Um, and we had people bringing in, you know, white grapes and, and uh, the early stuff. Uh, Andrew Rich, uh, you know, bringing in crazy stuff from 
Washington or Southern Oregon that was already ripe and and uh, there was a lot going on and it was a mess and I remember again there were you know there were winemakers there that had you know traveled from you know they were traveling from the southern hemisphere there were a group from Australia that were there and these guys are looking at all this and I remember them just going uh, I don't know and uh, at that point you know we had jumped we had committed there was no stopping we had to we had to make it work and that's what we set about doing and uh, I think we did pretty well um, until the second day or maybe third day <laughs> and uh, you know, the most expensive piece of equipment I had ever signed for was this really fancy German press and all computerized and everything. And on its second load, I had some of my Chardonnay grapes in it. It died. <laughs> and, you know, I have three or four tons of grapes, which was my entire white wine harvest for the year in there. And it dies. And... I was probably just silent. I was stunned and reconsidering, you know, God, how stupid, how arrogant was this to think that I could do this, that all these people said, you can't go do this. And so I, of course, called the company down in Napa and said, get someone up here, you know, and they dispatched a guy in a van with a bunch of parts and he started driving up and this was first thing in the morning and um, shortly over the next couple of hours I start getting messages from people and phone calls from people and I think by noon I had had maybe a half dozen folks that had called me and said, I heard your press is down you can redirect fruit to my place. We can process for you. Um, Dave Page at Adelsheim, you know, called and said, look, you know, send over a flatbed. We've got, you know, a 10 foot long press that we can load and it's our second and you can use it until you're up and running. And there were just so many, um, so many people that really came to our rescue because people, saw us as Oregon and saw us in the Oregon light of trying to help one another. And, um, and so we did whatever we did. I don't even remember, except that the, um, the guy from Napa showed up at about 12.15 in the morning and he shows up in his little white van and uh, about 15 minutes later, he had replaced the motherboard on this computerized monster, and it was working, and it was all fine. <laughs> you know, it wasn't any big problem, it was this little problem, but it was very precise in how it had to be fixed. And he drove for whatever, 12 hours, 11 hours, got here, 15 minutes later, he was done, and uh, we were up and running. And uh, that's, that was our start. Uh, since then, you know, we've had uh, over 40 wineries that have passed through the studio. Some of them have just been there to process some grapes, some extra capacity. 
Some of them, like Andrew, have been there since the beginning. Um, I was the managing or, or <laughs> maybe mismanaging partner. Uh, I'm a winemaker, not a business person. And uh, I was there until 2014, um, you know, trying to manage the needs and desires of all these different wineries. Um, you know, we averaged somewhere close to a dozen wineries a year. Most of them would stay for multiple years. Um, and the uh, 2014, it was going to be a big year. You could see it out in the vineyards in June. I was out talking to my growers and, and looking and talking to all the wineries. And, oh, my God, there's a lot of fruit out there. There's a lot of fruit out there. What are you going to do? Where, you know, how are we going to, you know, are you sure on your, your numbers, you know, that you're spot on on your estimates because we don't have room for everyone's fruit if you're as big as mine. And everyone was certain that they were spot on until about two weeks before picking. And then every single person there came to me and said, I'm going to have 20, 30, 40, 50% more grapes than I thought. And just FYI. And so then it was like, okay, what are we going to do? And uh, um, so we, you know, I ended up bringing in a, track, a couple tractor trailers, loading all my barrels and my, my own personal tanks and all my stuff. And I moved out to make room. And it was still the biggest harvest that we had ever had at Shalom, or at, Shalom at the studio. Um, and then I made my wine that year at Ponzi. Uh, they had moved into a new facility eight years previous that they hadn't finished growing into. I thought, oh, this will be easy. And then I'll come back to the studio. And um, this winery had been empty. No wine made here for nine years or so at that point. And uh, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law, Nancy and Maria, had both said, God, Eric, you should, you know, you should rent the old estate winery and and make your wines there and i had always felt obliged to support the studio and to try and make the studio run and so i never wanted to pull my support from that and in 14 there was just no way that we could all be there and at the beginning of 15 there was so much wine there that there was no way that i would fit the next year anyway so then I said, okay, let's, I'll take over the winery facility at the estate and rent that from you. And, and Maria is like, you got to have a place to sell. You got to, you need the, you need the tasting room. And I'm like, I'm not sure I can make wine in the same county as you guys. So let's hold off on, on whether or not I rent the whole place. And um, I was here for a year and it was awesome. And I love the place and I love the connection to the history of what this place is and was and to see my in-laws walk in and smell wine in here again was incredibly gratifying mm -hmm. and uh, so um, I moved here in the fall late fall winter of 14 and uh, completely bought into and signed off on renting the whole place, including the wine, uh, the tasting room 
in the spring of 16 and that's where I'm at. So as, as Louisa would say, Oregon's slowest growing winery is still growing slowly. Um, after 25 years, uh, uh, I would like to say I'm 2000 cases, which is where I've been for about 10 years. Um, although this year, uh, last year, 2020, uh, threw a strange curveball to the entire world. It just got stranger and curvier when it entered my cellar. Um, you know, it was my 25th anniversary. We were all set for that uh, big party and the whole bit. And uh, everyone knows what happened in 2020. COVID hit in the spring. Parties for the summer were canceled. Um, the world got turned upside down. I moved down here, uh, took over here, and then I've kind of been plinking along, making wine for myself and other folks here. And uh, then 2020 hit, and uh, I saw most of my wines are sold in restaurants. Um, you know, high-end Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, New York's almost always been my number one market um, followed by the you know big cities and markets like Chicago uh, San Francisco um, Texas Florida um, and with COVID and the closure of so many restaurants um, temporary or otherwise uh, the wines that those restaurants were selling the 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 wines that needed to be talked onto the table, mm -hmm. um, weren't getting sold. And the restaurant wines, as a, as a part of the market, largely has gone away. Mm -hmm. um, what we've seen is, at least initially in 2020, was grocery store lower price point wines doing amazingly well. Huge, huge sales increases. But at the higher end of the spectrum, the ultra premium, really dropping off. I've seen this coming for a long time in a less dramatic fashion as small distributors get bought up by big distributors. And this is not so much my story as the story of every small winemaker in the world. That as the smaller niche hand selling distribution channels get bought up by bigger and bigger and bigger books, we suddenly don't have people that know us, that have been to our cellars, that know what we're about, that are hand selling these wines saying, God, this is amazing. You know, let me tell you about this guy. Because we're now part of a book that has 2,000 or 3,000 or more wines in it. And that it's been really tough on small wineries. Um, you know, some, they get press or whatever, for whatever reason, they get known and they do really, really well. Explosive growth mm -hmm. and support in the market, broad support. For a lot of us, for most of us in Oregon, we don't have that. We don't have a marketing arm. Marketing is my business card, me putting it in your hand, but I had to buy a plane ticket to come and give it to you, you know? and. Oregon, on so many levels, has punched above its weight class for its entire existence. 
But this period, the consolidation of distribution, uh, and especially now with uh, COVID, has really knocked us for a loop. Um, with distributors going away because they're, they're being bought up, and maybe the new distributor doesn't want to bother with a small producer that can't make them much money. They want somebody bigger that they can make more money off of, you know, printing your name on a paper. So um, that's a problem, a problem with a lot of your wineries go, or a lot of your outlets, a lot of your restaurants going away, bankruptcy or just closure. It reminds me very much of 9-11. You know, New York was my number one market on 9-11. Um, you know, I had a great distributor there, uh, founded by one of New York's best psalms, uh, Daniel Jonas and Du Chapeau. Um, and 9-11, it was 18 months before I sold another box of wine in New York. And it required everyone to completely retool how we were planning to do our business and what we were thinking we would do next week, next month, next year, next five years. And this feels a lot like that. And so what I've seen is, you know, international sales have dropped to zero in the last year. Uh, national sales have dropped by over 75% problem. I haven't looked, although I should. Um, it's ridiculous. Um, it's ridiculous. So it's required all of us to sit there and say, so what the hell are we gonna do? And um, I think the great thing that it's inspired us to do is to kind of say, okay, there's no model that I can use to figure out what I'm going to do. So what do I think might work to keep me in business until next week or whatever? And, you know, lo and behold, at the end of the year, as we came to a close, you know, overall sales were down only about 25%. But the channels uh, that were used to achieve that were completely different. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, uh, I think that that's what all of us are looking at and direct to consumer and club and hosting people. I mean, sitting here, we're sitting in the cellar, what I call the first year cellar or the front cellar. This is where my 2020 wine should be. And there's no wine this year because on top of COVID, um, <laughs> I was delivered another surprise in the first week of September when the Shehalem Bald Peak wildfire started less than 200 yards from my front door. And I'm lucky that the wind was at our back and that Tualatin Valley fire and the grace of God or whoever uh, worked to save my house and we didn't lose, we didn't have anything on our property burn. But 
the smoke was so thick that you couldn't see 10 yards outside at times for weeks, for weeks. And that was on top of all the other fires that were going on in Oregon. And this, as my 25th year, was going to be my first year that I was going to do 100% of my wine from my own grapes, from my own estate, from Paloma, where I live. And so for the first time, ironically, that I wasn't buying from 10 different other vineyards all over the, the state, I was getting everything from home and home went away this year. They say that the different compounds that make up smoke taint, if you have below 30 parts per billion in the various tests to look at those, um, that you might be able to make decent wine out of it. Um, my vineyard had over 300 parts per billion. And so it was a lost cause. And, you know, um, I didn't make any wine. It was the first time since I was 17 that I didn't make any wine at all, that I, my hands literally were clean and didn't have the Oregon winemaker black cracked hands. Um, and it's sad, but at the same time, um, it's an opportunity, you know, talking to friends in Napa and Sonoma that have lost their homes or lost vineyards or lost wineries or new people that died in wildfires there over the last few years demanded a pretty quick paradigm shift that maybe this is what COVID teaches all of us that, yeah, it's a really shitty thing, but if you spend any more than about five seconds thinking about it, you're being wasteful, you know, that it's about realizing what's what you have and what you don't have and going forward. And I don't know, the, I guess the other thing that that reminds me of is a winemaker from, from the studio who was the very first person to sign on to the studio with me when it was still a dream, uh, was Bryce Bagnell and Bryce and Marcia Bagnell that started Bryce Vineyards. And Bryce and I had worked together for the Shalone Wine Group way back when, and Bryce was just, you know, an amazing guy and an amazing winemaker and an amazing human. And when I told him about this crazy dream of going to Oregon and starting some sort of multiple winery thing, you know, he, you know, we were still at Shalone at that point. And he said, count me in, I am gonna be there. I will write you a check today. And this is years before <laughs> I had made that a common idea that I shared with many people. And Bryce became the first person to sign up for the studio. And a couple years later was stricken with ALS, Lou Gehrig's and um, you know, the industry in absolutely one of its best 
moments came together to support Bryce. And when we all heard that he was sick and the call went out to try and put together some wine to help defray his costs, we literally had dozens and dozens and dozens of Oregon wineries that wanted to offer wine up and we made the Bryce blend in I think 2003 and we were still blending as the bottling line was running because more people were showing up to give a little bit and the reason that I think it's so important to say this is twofold I think one it shows the generosity of spirit and the kindness that Oregon has shown to one another and to our industry and the idea of support and it's happened multiple times but it happened with Bryce and Bryce I had known long before I got to Oregon and I still think about him and I still listen to things that he said to me and one of you know those things is I asked him about having ALS and how do you get up when you're just getting knocked down so much? And he laughed and he said, well, I allow myself five minutes a day to mope and feel sorry for myself. And anything beyond that is just self-indulgent and a waste of time. And you know, this is somebody that truly was facing a, a, a death sentence. And yet he still had the grace and the sense of humor to look at the the kind of hopelessness that that position put him in, and yet he could laugh about it and help me to better understand what he was going through. And uh, anyway, um, he was one of my biggest supporters here, and another one of those people that really supported the idea of the Oregon dream and. Now, of course you should go to Oregon, and of course you should do this, and of course you should quit working for a corporate winery that doesn't worry about whatever it is that you value. And, you know, Oregon, yeah, it is. It's for dreamers. And, and you know, he started his little winery, and, you know, it was the embodiment of what so many of us came here to do. So anyway, um, as grim as, as 2020 was and the pandemic is, you know, I, I think we'll muddle on, you know? It's not gonna be easy, it's not gonna be clear cut, but maybe, maybe this will be the year, the moment that kind of regrounds Oregon and gives us that communal spirit that as more and more people and bigger and bigger money comes in, that um, we became less and less together and maybe more and more separated. But I think that this is one of those things I've seen more people coming together in the last six months to taste and to talk and to, you know, figure out what the best, most likely 
reasonable way forward is than I have in the last few years, for sure. Um, Oregon is still made up of predominantly a lot of really small wineries that are not necessarily mom and pop, but individuals that put themselves their all into it. And um, working together is where those individuals can maximize their strengths and minimize their weaknesses. And this, whether it's the studio or just taking in a, a border, so to speak, in your winery for a year or two or four or whatever. Um, I see that as the, the way moving forward. Um, it's a little bit easier to maybe do that now because of the work that we did to get the studio up and running. Um, you know, I think when we started this, you know, way back when Lemelson was being built, you know, 99 maybe, I think 99 is when that became its first vintage. You know, when we were trying to pass the legislation a couple years before that to make wineries within a winery legal in Oregon, I don't think that any of us had any concept that it was going to go this direction um, or what direction it was going to go. We just had, we saw these, these rules that, you know, people were doing this. They were, you know, making wine in each other's cellars and it was kind of a wink and a nod. And technically when I realized in 96, maybe earlier, that it wasn't legal according to the Oregon Liquor Control Commission. Um, and at that point, even the federal ATF, um, what's now called the TTB, you know, it was legal nationally to do this. You could see it being done in California, but it wasn't viewed as legal in Oregon. And we needed to talk about... Um, we needed to talk about changing that because the idea that we, myself, others would come here uh, from other places and take our money and put it into a system that was technically illegal made no sense. And so we worked towards, um, we worked towards getting the laws changed. And at that point, Oregon legislature was meeting every other year and we put forward a couple of bills and one said yeah you know you can you can make it you know you can have a winery within a winery legally federally we were allowed to do that it just hadn't been done here um and it needed oregon to say okay you can do that because at that point you couldn't when i first got here i had to work as a wholesaler and so when I was a winemaker for Hal Medici in 95, I made wine for Medici as their winemaker. Um, I paid for grapes as a grape broker from a vineyard that sold grapes to Medici. Medici invoiced me 
I sent a check to the grower. The, I made the wine from those grapes that I had been nurturing along out in a vineyard. And then I blended and I bottled the wine and then I had to buy the wine back from Medici and he had to pay me as his winemaker. And I think most of those were kind of like, you know, when all said and done, it's like, here's a dollar. Okay, here's a dollar and we're done. And then I was a wholesaler. I wasn't a winery. I was a wholesaler. And as a wholesaler, I had just the minimum amount that I could sell was five gallons of wine. So, so it was like two cases and so many bottles of wine to make a legal sell. So if you wanted to buy a bottle of Eric Homaker's 1995 Pinot Noir to sell it directly to you, I had to sell you 30 something bottles. And that was illegal if I sold you one. <laughs> yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, anyway, it was obvious it needed to change. And so I worked with a number of people and I was kind of the poster child for it and spoke at the legislature. And I remember working with Jess Lyons from Davis Wright Tremaine you know, a great advocate and uh, <laughs> a double entendre there. He advocates for the wine industry and he's a lawyer and he's done a lot of great work for us. And, um, you know, talking with Jess and, you know, what we needed to do. And he kind of explained how this was going to go. And we were, you know, we, we had written up this piece of legislation to allow this to happen. But then the brewing industry or the beer distributors, you know, wanted their pound of flesh out of it. And so we had to split the bill into two. And anyway, there was a tremendous amount of drama around this. And it came down to that we had the opportunity to put a bill forward that would make it possible for a winery to offer a home inside their winery to another winery. And that was the bill that got passed, I think, in 97. Um, what we wanted at that point was that, of course, the new winery would have a winery license that, you know, when they finished working with the host winery, they could move and they could take their license with them to their new home and establish a new, you know, their new home there. And we were denied that opportunity by the, uh, basically the person who was the head of beer and wine distribution, um, who advocated in the state capitol, who had way too much power. And it was a ridiculous thing, but I saw in that how sausage was made and it wasn't pretty. And anyway, so we, you know, I was all set to go appear before some committee and you'd say, yeah, you know, I'm a small winery. I want to do this. You know, I want to, I don't want to be a wholesaler. You know, I'm a winemaker. I moved here to be a winemaker. I should be able to be allowed to sell my wine one bottle at a time to anybody I want. You know, I pay my taxes. I do all this. And, um, you know, and it's it's an orchestrated dance that I was so naive about that, okay, you know, 
someone will bring this up and then I'll, I'll speak and then someone will say, who seconds this motion? And then this other person, congressperson, member of the House will say, I second this. And then it would be voted on and move forward. And uh, the, <laughs> the uh, person who spoke before us was like the SPCA on another bill talking about dogs being chasing livestock and that in some counties in Oregon that dog is immediately put to death and in others it you know gets a warning and gets off and that they can move the dog to another county and it can chase and kill livestock and anyway long way around the barn but since I'm here and no one's going to tell this story again I'll just say it it was shocking to me that the SPCA and judges that had appeared and had to rule on this in their county said, you know, the neighbor's dog chased my sheep, no harm done, but, you know, a report was made and so the dog is now on death row and it's not right. So the SPCA and the vets and the judges said, let's just microchip these dogs so that we can follow them and their warnings can follow them and if people don't do the right thing, ultimately the state will have to do something with these dogs. And, you know, it seemed really reasonable. And then this lawmaker stands up and says, by God, you know, today it's our dogs and tomorrow it's us. It's a slippery slope. And in light of what happened last week at our nation's capital, I look back at this moment and go, Jesus Christ, Rationality died, and this guy who was worried about having us all microchipped because of dogs chasing livestock, and I know it has nothing to do with wine, but that was what happened. That was what was presented before I appeared before this subcommittee at our state capitol to talk about wines and allowing wineries to exist within wineries. So anyway, I appear and we get to the point where everyone's questioned me and we're done and it looks great. And then they say, who seconds this motion? And the dog tag guy stands up and says, by God, I second this motion. This poor abused you know, businessman is just trying to make a living. And I'm going, oh shit, it's the dog guy go away and he's standing up and he claims that and in retrospect now I see he saw this was a bill that was going to be passed and he wanted his name on it <coughs> in spite of all the other crap that he stood up to own that day this was one piece of legislation that made sense but he glommed onto it it passed immediately it was unanimous. It got an emergency signature from the governor so that it was effective before harvest as opposed to waiting to the end of the term. And that was where we started with the wineries within wineries, what are called the alternating premise, where wineries can bond, federally bond protected space. It's way more than anyone wants to listen to, but the essence of it is the federal law and they control the production of alcohol says you need to have an enclosed protected space 
that you can technically keep your records in and you have control over. Your alcohol needs to also be protected, but it didn't say that it had to be in your enclosed bonded space. It said it had to be collected or safe. So my first, I think I was the first one, my bonded space was a closet at Limelson Winery. It was a broom closet on the bottom floor at the base of the cellar, the base of the stairwell. If you come down the winding stairs, you end up in this long hallway. If you take a left, there's a door on the left, and that was my bonded space. And I argued that the law only said it needed to be a lockable space, and I could keep my my records in there. And that's what I did. And we put a lock on that broom closet. And when they came to inspect it, that's what they saw. And I was asked by Bernie Kip, who was the head of the ATF um, in the, for the Northwest region at that point, um, <clears throat> who was a big fan of making this change, but he asked me when I, when I wrote up my application not to call it a broom closet, to describe that it was a room that was two feet by three feet and eight feet tall and had one man door, one locking man door. And so I could describe it for what it was, but I just, he just didn't want to call it a broom closet because it drew the attention away from what the point was. So I became a winery. My wine was made at Lemelson by me, a winery, in a space that was lockable and in a tank or a barrel or anything else that had my name on it. Um, but the essence of it was that the access into the winery was controlled and that this tank would alternate that maybe today this tank is Lemelson and tomorrow at eight o'clock in the morning it's empty and it becomes Hamaker and it alternates and my name goes on it and on a clipboard somewhere I write down tank 201 is now Hamaker from eight o'clock in the morning until whenever and so that was where the alternating multiple wineries thing got going when we started the studio in 2002, um, again, reading the regulations from the feds very closely, uh, we were required to have a lockable space that was to a height of, I think, eight feet, um, because California had already, uh, Helen Turley, which I mentioned early on, had already kind of broken the ground on wineries within wineries in California. And at first it was separate rooms. And then it became an enclosed cage space with uh, wire. I mean, like a, a chain link fence and a gate with a door on it. And then it's like she, I believe it was Helen that argued, why the hell do I have to put it all the way up 40 feet in the air? It's inside a locked building, eight feet. So then it was like, okay, eight feet. And then it was, okay, so this tank is out here. It's not inside my space, but that's the space that alternates. So all of winery A is in here. 
what's out here alternates between winery A, B, and C based on time. And so then it's written down on a clipboard and you put a tag on the tank or the press or whatever. And ultimately, most of the winery is alternating space that flows and flows back to a winery, away from a winery, to another winery, away from that winery. And that each winery has its own area. So when we started the studio, we did that. And we had our barrels all stored in our own spaces, which was a pain in the ass. Um, not because we were moving them around willy-nilly, but really, do I need to go through one more locked space? At the studio, we put up eight-foot barriers. In different, we had three different barrel cellars. And in the largest one, we had barrels that were in what are called oxo racks. So imagine a honeycomb style hive of tubular steel cells. And each, each hive, each cell has one barrel in it. And then there's another barrel and another barrel. And, and anyway, these barrels go six barrels high. And that we had those lined off, at least at the ground level, with a separation that I forget the exact verbiage, something about, you know, impeded access into the controlled space. And so we needed a gate and we needed a lock and we needed to impede access to a height of eight feet. And so I just hate chain link. And my partner, Ned Lumpkin, was a sailor. And he said, you know, I happen to know there's a whole bunch of stuff around that we could use. And I said, okay. And it turns out that the sailcloth off of 10 meter sailboats is very difficult to get through. It's very tough, uh, very strong, uh, has a lot of Kevlar, the same stuff that bulletproof vests have. And they only use them when they're racing for several races and then they're considered spent. And most of these things are retired and become tents for refugees around the world. And Ned said, I could get a bunch of those. And so we got those and we got them cut and rejiggered to hang up between what would normally have chain link fence going through the cellar. And we had sailcloth and the beauty was we had sailcloth one of them was from new zealand and had the nz the nz complete with the the oh i forget the name of the the term of the the little um, pieces of cloth that hang on the sail the telltales that tell you when the wind's blowing and how strongly and every uh, kiwi that came to work in the cellar at the studio in the first five years we were there, saw these Kiwi sails with New Zealand or NZ on them and said, oh my God, it's a New Zealand. You know? and, and they loved it. But the bigger point was that we had chain link doors uh, and gates, and then we had sailcloth that went up eight feet tall. And over time, we argued for marking each section of barrels with a color and uh, each tank with 
vineyard tape around it of a different color and each winery was assigned a color so you could tell at a glance who owned that barrel you know and who owned the wine that was in that tank today and especially at the studio where we had 12 or 14 different wineries working 24 hours a day during harvest um, we saw a huge uh, benefit in using colors to mark things and I picked it up from a friend that was a caterer and they would always have all the food that was to go to the job at the Smith house was marked with an orange dot and everything that was going to the you know Museum of History had a blue dot and so you could you could quickly alternate and make changes and people could understand what was going on and so we flagged everything. Every tank was wrapped in ribbon. Every barrel section was wrapped in duct tape of a certain color. The board, the processing board, which told everyone what was going on in the next 24 hours, the next week, the next two weeks, was written in a color that indicated who wrote it. So what, you know, if you saw the number 2TPN on the seven days from now, that would tell you that whoever was red was bringing in two tons of Pinot Noir seven days from now, or at least they thought they did. And so that's how we morphed. And today, this idea of the complete separation is gone. We've taken down the sails. We've taken down the, the, the gates and so on. But we, at the studio, still use color as a marker for an area um, so that it's clear. And there's a lot more to that, but that's the essence of it, uh, that we kept records. Uh, the head of the TTB, or the ATF at that point, now Tax and Trade Bureau, the number one and number two people from D.C. came out to look at our argument uh, for the winemaker's studio. Um, within the first year, of our operation there and Bernie Kip, the head of ATF here in Oregon brought them and they were talking about all the colors and everything and um, they saw the essence of what we were aiming to do and it made sense and pointing out that I had a lot more involved as a small proprietor in the value of that wine in that barrel than they did in taxable revenue. And the thinking had been, what about, you know, what if we don't get our 17 cents of tax from you or whatever? And, and we're like, well, if we lose track of that barrel, we've lost a lot more. Mm -hmm. And so it's in our interest to keep tabs on it. And you have the right to come and say, I want to see where your barrels are, and you have to produce that, and you have to have your records and your bonded space, which got smaller when I set up the studio and we went to drawers, and we had lockable uh, file cabinets for every winery that was in there, that just a single drawer. Everyone had their color, their name on it, and it was lockable, and that's what we did there. Anyway, it was an evolution, and it's gotten easier to do that, and I think that that's been great because it's allowed a lot of small winemakers to put their money and their efforts to where it mattered into making the wine that they believed in and allowed them 
to shield themselves from the huge cost of trying to start up a winery. You know, it took me 14 years to get to a point where I could, you know, get grapes out of my own vineyard. You know, if I hadn't done the studio, there's no way I could have done that. You know, if I had taken on that much overhead, I couldn't have made the decisions to say, this is my best wine. This is, you know, kind of worthy of my whole last name. It's Homaker, as opposed to my second label, which is just called H. You know, um, if I had to make those decisions with a banker in my lap, I couldn't have made a lot of those decisions to declassify wine and put better juice in the bottle. You know, I would just have to make a certain amount of money every year, regardless of what the quality of the wine was. And so I see the multiple winery as a, a huge turning point, both to increase quality and to increase opportunity of all the people that come to the point where they have to make wine. Mm -hmm. And that to me is huge. The idea of the studio, it's taken off all over the place. I've, I've seen places that even used our font and our, our color and our color scheme and their website layout and everything that maybe they borrowed a little too much from us. Um, for a long time, you know, I had, ta I had trademarked uh, studio in connection to wine and I had written a lot of letters. Basically, I had called a lot of people and said, you know, the, the studio, I, I kind of, I trademarked that, you know, in 2001. You know, you can't really use that as the name of your winery. And everyone kind of said, oh, okay. And that was kind of it. It wasn't a big deal, you know. And then at one point, uh, <laughs> a Napa Valley winemaker had his son, son, one of his sons come up and work at the studio for a harvest. And then they announced that they were going to use studio as part of their new name and i called and no one would answer my call and then i had our lawyer send a letter and then i got back a letter that was six times as long from their lawyer basically saying we're going to use the studio name and you may legally be right but um you will not win for at least 20 years at that point i started calling everyone back saying Feel free to use the name studio in terms of your winery. And as Louisa said, you know, it's another gift that we can give the wine industry that really describes what's going on in these places. Um, anyway, um, I think that small wineries banding together makes perfect sense. I think that it perfectly exemplifies what got Oregon up and going and has kept it getting better. We've seen this tendency to try and do better by getting together with people of like minds and assisting each other. And you cannot make it through a couple days in wine country without hearing the rising tide floats all boats uh, saying, but it's true. And I, I felt like um, 
and maybe we still are. We're at the the closing of the golden age of of Oregon winemaking because we're saying goodbye to more of the founders. You know, we still have some around and some are still really vibrant and yet we are reaching that point and we're having a lot of people come in with different ideas that don't understand how it was made here, how it came together and kind of the order that has become normal. And it, that's understandable that that's going to change. Um, but that said, I feel like I just keep seeing more and more things where small wineries are just putting a shout out to people saying, hey, I need this or I need that or I'm doing this. Are any of you interested in it? And that camaraderie is still alive and well. And I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Um, it's amazing. Oregon's amazing. Um, it truly is. I don't know. I don't know what else are there. Well, this is the longest we've ever gone talking to a winemaker without actually talking about your wine. So it's at least spent a minute <laughs> talking about your wine and, and uh, what, what you're putting in the bottle and, and why. What's, what's the philosophy behind your wines and, and, and how has it evolved uh, in the time you've been making wine? Hmm. In a nutshell, I would say that my wines were built, have been built, have been constructed out of a lot of disparate parts, different vineyards of different ages, elevations, soils, clones, etc. When I moved up here, I didn't know where I wanted to hang my hat. I just knew I wanted to be in Oregon. I knew Willamette Valley and I knew Yamhill, but I didn't know anything else. And I got up here and I had been talking to vineyard owners for a year plus before I got here and had said, you know, will you lease me an acre of grapes? And I think most of them said, I'll sell you a ton of grapes. I'm like, well, no, I want control of the vineyards. You know, I, I want it to be farmed a little differently and I want to control, you know, I want to take the natural farming tendency away from more is better and to look at it differently. And that was a new thing. And I think for a number of my growers, maybe the Durants, maybe I was the first one that had talked to them about that, about going by the acre instead of by the ton. And that required to kind of share in the risk and to offer a little more um, in terms of price, that the goal was to make better grapes, not more grapes, and not to accept the status quo. Um, I think that that was a big, big thing. Um, the fact that I was making wines from a bunch of different vineyards, I think in 95, I had seven different vineyards from what are now, I think, four different AVAs. Um, most of the last decade, I would say that I've been over 10 vineyards from probably four AVAs. Um, the idea was to make the wine separately, um, have a light hand in the winemaking, native yeast, bacteria, 
kind of hands-off, lower sulfur, um, clean grapes and try and let them do what they do. Um, to the chagrin of some of my visiting Davis professors. Um, again, you know, everything in life is relative. You know, when you're a Davis professor and you're talking about being able to have, you know, fermentation that is predictable and full and without surprise or drama, that's admirable. And in some places, that is the yardstick you should use. My feeling has always been that as small producers, we shouldn't be struggling and, and trying to emulate and trying to be identical year after year. What we should be struggling for is to show what our place, our site is. And for somebody who has made wine from multiple sites, that sounds like a, a bit of a, a, a misnomer or a conundrum at the minimum. Um, but the idea was to find out, working with all these different sites, where I wanted to be. And so that's why I started there. My first harvest here, my entire life savings was on the 95 harvest. And it started raining, and it kept raining, and it kept raining, and it kept raining. And I was pretty sure before I picked anything that I was out of business. Um, I made the wines as best I could. I did everything that I could get my hands on in terms of reading about and learning about, but I had never seen a harvest like that. And talking with Dick and Louisa and some of the other winemakers who had been around here, you know, there were some pretty basic directions on what to do. Um, and I did those and I did what I thought was best and I kind of left it alone and I, I didn't taste my first wines the entire, you know, once they went to barrel, I didn't taste them. And I waited until they were done with malolactic and I, I analyzed the bejesus out of them and I looked at them and I didn't taste them and it was probably May or June before I finally pulled them out and looked at them individually. And I was shocked at how pretty they were. Um, they were very different from anything I had ever done. Um, and, you know, I liked them all, but I didn't really love them all. And as I had them out on the table in front of me, I ultimately, poured them together in a glass and looked at that. And it's like, oh my God, that is so much better than any one of these. I'm going to do a blend. And so I made a blend that year. And I had thought I was going to do seven different Pinot Noirs. And I did one Pinot Noir. And when I released it, it was recognized by the wine enthusiast, one of their editors. It was an editor's choice of a bad vintage of an unknown kid in Oregon, you know, from a region that really didn't have much of a pedigree, and it got someone's attention. And then it kind of went from there. And stylistically, the wine was very elegant. Um, texturally, it was about the sweetness and the suppleness that you get from Pinot Noir, I think often in cooler vintages. 
you see it more. And I really love that. And I really love the acidity. That's what I came for. And that's what I followed was that first vintage. If 96 had been as bad as 95, I would have been out of business for sure. I made enough, you know, I didn't release the 95 until after the 96, you know, I, because I kept the wine in barrel for 18 months and then I bottled it and I held it. And so I had actually already harvested 97 and maybe 98 by the time I released the 95. And that spoke to where I came from, the restaurant business, that we were always selling the wines that every other restaurant in town had and no one had the time or the money or the space to age wines till they got older. And I was really in love with older, more mature wines because they just kept getting better and better, especially the high alcohol, uh, not high alcohol, the high acid wines like Burgundy. They just got better and better and better. And no one was doing that. And I was too ignorant, arrogant, I don't know, um, to accept that it made no business sense whatsoever to do that. And I held on to the wines. And so I had three wines or four wines in the door before I released my first one. And so I've never, I've always been strapped for cash. And I've somehow managed. Um, and that's where my wines have gone is mostly to restaurants that appreciate the extra time in the bottle and that they can get something with some age on it and elegant wines that speak of a place, not a specific hillside, but of a place of the Willamette Valley and have the, some maturity from being in the bottle and have some density from the extra six to 10 months in barrel and have the succulents that Pinot Noirs get. And, you know, last night, uh, my wife brought out a bottle of California Pinot Noir. I, should say, I shouldn't say that on tape. She brought out a 2014 William Selium that somebody gave her, I'm sure, you know, but she brought it out. And I had brought out a bottle of 14 of mine and I decided, what the hell? I want to see these next to each other. And we were stunned. And I know nothing about the 14 harvest in Napa or in Sonoma, but we were stunned at how similar the wines were. Um, theirs definitely had a lot more alcohol and kind of bigger shoulders, but um, it was surprising. They were both really beautiful wines. And I think that what I'm after is elegant wines that have good acidity, that are not overblown and overwhelmed by my fingerprints, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that get better in the bottle because they are lower alcohol and higher acid in general with well-added amounts of oak. Instead of, you know, when I started a 15 month air dried barrel was the standard, you know, what I have in my cellar is 36 to 48 month air dried wood before it's coopered. And then 
you put your wine in it. And so the rain has leached out so much of the wood tannins and the astringency that for a lot of winemakers overwhelms their wine and shows you a variant of kind of fruit spiced wood tea, you know, that, I mean, I'm only half joking when I use that term, because if you put beautiful, elegant, fragile um, Pinot Noir juice or wine into a barrel that is heavily charred, that looks like last night's barbecue um, because you burn the bejesus out of the barrel to give it that smoky, meaty aroma. Fine, your wines will smell smoky and meaty, but you've seeded over the top the most aromatic and pretty, perfumey and pretty and light molecular weight, the, the floral and and delicate aromas of your wine are bludgeoned by the smoke and the the heavier aromas. At the minimum, they are bound up to that charcoal, which is what charcoal is used for. It's binding aroma and flavor and taking it away from whatever is passing through or over that charcoal, whether it's water um, trying to get rid of smells and aromas, or it's bourbon, or whiskey, or whatever, or Pinot Noir, sadly. And so, yeah, that's what I'm going for. I'm going for showing my wines, but adding some of the beauty that you can get from aging in a barrel and drying that wine out, drawing some of the moisture out into the cellar and giving you concentration and giving you some of the sweetness that you can get from some of the components of the barrel and some of the textural richness and tannins that can be the backbone of your wine, much the way that a good chef can cook something with some garlic. It's, you know, I, I almost anyone that's been to my cellar has probably heard this before, you know, it's, it's supposed to be chicken with garlic, not garlic with chicken. And I think especially with white wines, with white wines and with Pinot Noir, oftentimes the barrel overwhelms. And so that is one thing for sure that I've tried not to do. Um, I love drinking my wines older. I constantly get calls and emails and text messages from people that have opened a bottle often on some special night because it's an old bottle. And, you know, to receive something that's 15, you know, to hear about in the last couple of months, I've heard of people drinking 98s and 2001s and 2005s that they're like, oh my God, this was so good. And this is what Oregon's capable of. It's just most of us weren't lucky enough to have parents that gave us a fully mature cellar of wine, you know, for whatever reason, you know, that we just didn't have that. And so most people haven't tasted mature wines. And I'm not saying everyone needs to love really old wines, but everyone should get a chance to taste a good wine that's 10 years old. You know, most 
of the folks that buy my wines have tasted those wines and they love those older wines. Um, I had one chef that didn't want to put my wine on his wine list because he said my wines were too old. And I, I smiled and said, so why do you have a wine cellar? And he said, well, I don't really have a wine cellar. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, it's really expensive. I said, well, if it wasn't expensive, why would you have a wine cellar? And he ultimately came to the conclusion that it was to drink old wines. And so, I don't know, he ended up buying some, but he was never a big supporter. And that's okay. I, you know, I'm not making my wines for mass marketing. I'm making my wines and I'm most pleased when somebody has a bottle of my wine and they think of Oregon and they wonder and they marvel at how much of that year in that place is in that bottle that they can look at and experience. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they're doing it with people they care about, enjoying a meal and making a memory that they're gonna remember. Mm -hmm. And if it brings them that, then I've more than done my job. If it breaks down some barriers and brings some people closer together, God knows we need that now more than ever. So, um, I don't know, that's what I'm hoping, is uh, that people will continue to see the beauty of what we can produce here in the Willamette Valley and around the world, but that it's about people. At its core, it's about people and place. It's not about the cheapest, or the easiest to get a hold of, or the fastest, or anything else like that. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Thanks, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm totally up for more questions, <laughs> but you guys have more than done your, your duty putting up with me today, so. Well, I'm gonna ask you one more, There's, I have many more questions I want. Oh, please, I'm gonna, please. Ask, I'm gonna ask, well, I'll ask you two more. I wanna start with, with, your, with Luisa, obviously you talked about, you, you're married to a winemaker, prominent winemaker, prominent family. <laughs> I'm curious about how you've made that work over the years in terms of, obviously that makes scheduling difficult because your, <laughs> your busy times are, every, are the same. And also just on a more general level of, of, of you doing your thing and her doing her thing and you not, you guys not getting each other's way but being each other's best, you know, how does it work? How does the dynamic work between the two of you when it comes to winemaking and when it comes to having a happy, healthy relationship? Hmm. You gotta work at a happy, healthy relationship, no matter what, whether you're winemakers or anything else. Um, I think that, uh, and I, I guess this kind of works with winemaking and our situation too, but one of my favorite sayings is, you know, longevity is bred by flexibility or some variant of that. So we were flexible, I mean, you know, we had uh, two kids and felt like our table wasn't full and we decided to have another. Um, Luisa's grandfather and, and mine were both fraternal twins, which run in both families. And with our first kids, we thought, oh, for sure, we're gonna have twins, and we didn't. And then we thought, oh, for sure, on our second, we're gonna have twins, and we didn't. And then we suddenly had twins. And um, 
friends of ours uh, that are in the wine business said, you know, I'm really glad you're having twins because with a single, another single baby, you guys might just try and fake it and get through it. And that's just not possible with twins. And so we really did, by that point, have to reconsider how we did things. Um, luckily, we had, uh, we were working for ourselves, and so we had flexibility there. We have a lot of family around, so there was flexibility there. Um, by the time the twins showed up in 06, um, you know, I was fully ensconced in the winemaker's studio but part of flexibility there was trying to spread out all of these different winemakers over the course of the day. So it was very common for me to get up early, 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 like, um, you know, to be at work at three or, or definitely by four in the morning um, doing punch downs and be the first one in the winery and open up the doors and get rid of the CO2 and put on music and man, that was my religion. You know, I mean, that was my church. And, and by the time the sun was coming up a few hours later, you know, it was, a, it was an experience to me that was profound mm -hmm. and I loved it. And, you know, I would work all day and the goal was we would have a nanny or at one point, we had four nannies one year when we had all the kids and they were going to different places and and to get us through harvest we needed that many people to cover us um, but i would hopefully be home by dinner time that a nanny would hopefully get dinner going and i would tuck the kids in and louisa would be there in the morning and get them up in the morning and get them to school and she would hopefully be home by midnight and then I would be out by three or four. And that's, you know, we were flexible and we had support and Nancy and Dick were amazing. And Maria would jump in and, and Brett and um, I don't know, you know, we just, we just kept going and we really talked about winemaking very infrequently. I mean, it was usually, someone's cooking dinner and it's like red or white, you know, where do you, you know, what do you want? And, and that was kind of it. Um, we had different ways of doing things, but I think we both have turned to each other over the years and really talked about, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this and what do you think? And, and I, always said I stole from everyone I ever visited, you know, going around the world, working in wineries around the world, visiting wineries. You know, when I put together the studio, I had notebooks of, of drawings and pictures and ideas. And, and um, you know, even this year, this year with the fires, you know, talking to friends in New Zealand and Australia that have dealt with that before, especially Australia. You know, um, and it's like, I have no idea what the hell I'm gonna do. And there are some pretty horrific fears you're facing when your entire harvest is being bathed in smoke 
And to talk to somebody who's gone through that numerous times and hear their long and short-term worries and their long and short-term ideas was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think it saved our industry a tremendous amount of hurt and financial ruin that other people have gone through in California too Mm -hmm. that have dealt with smoke taint as a real threat. And I think that moving forward, you know, we'll be better prepared because it's likely that we're going to see this more and more often. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we worked a lot together this fall um, to talk about smoke and to, you know, I made a bunch of small fermentations to just check and see. But then when I brought the wines together to taste them with other folks, including Louisa, it's like, yeah, that tastes like shit. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to pick that block, you know, and. And um, anyway, mm-hmm. um, so I would say that uh, for us, uh, we've always tried to be supportive of each other and that we've always tried to be flexible enough that the other could do what they needed to do. And we've been really fortunate to have a lot of other people that support us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think working at the studio for so long you know, to be there for 12 years making my wine, it, it was a m- way that I could count on support without necessarily having the infrastructure of hiring all those people that I didn't want to pay for all day long. You know, I just needed them there at, you know, in the evening to do my punch down because I didn't want to come back at 11 o'clock. You know, um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So... So what's next for you? Obviously, the, the 25th anniversary didn't go to plan. Um, what is next for your for you and your brand? Well, I'm guessing the 25.7 anniversary is coming, or 25.6 or 25.8. And I don't know that there's a formal name for that, but, um, you know, we're going to, the wine club, I hope, uh, we'll have a big old party this summer to celebrate as I said earlier, being vertical, uh, you know, it's a new marker of success. Okay, I'm still standing up. Okay, I'm good. Um, I see um, continuing with the idea of keeping it small. I've cut back on the amount of consulting that I'm doing with other folks. Um, I see making you know, getting back into making bits of wine from all over and still doing some of that. Um, Mostly for Wine Club, you know, in the first 20 years, I did 100 cases of single vineyard wine, um, single barrels, four different times. And I, you know, people kept tasting in my cellar and said, I want a case of this. It's like, sorry, that's part of the blend. Um, But now that I have my own Wine Club, and I have my own sales space, um, I see the real value of making the blend like I've always done. And when things are really good, pulling out a barrel to do that. And I love that because I, I'm, it's really clear, like when I pull something out of Le Chenet in the Eola Hills, it's so distinct and so different than pulling something off of Mount Richmond in Yamhill Carlton or, you know, Elevé in Dundee Hills, or um, 
Ghost Hill, you know, and, and another uh, Carlton, AVA, Yamhill Carlton, but a diff completely different animal than what Adam's Vineyard there at Mount Richmond from Elk Cove has. So I love that variety. I love tasting those wines, drinking those wines, not just tasting. Um, um, and I see uh, with our own vineyard uh, to do more there, uh, probably more um, experimental stuff. You know, uh, I've done very little whole cluster stuff over the years because I didn't want to get too far outside the bounds of what people had come to expect of Hamaker. Um, but I can see doing that on our own property. I mean, we have 20, I think it's 24 or 26 clones of Pinot Noir in that vineyard um, and two clones of Chardonnay. We just finished clearing the last six or seven plantable acres um, that will cover crop and, and run our animals on for the next couple of years before we plant that. Um, probably looking at planting some, you know, maybe some different clones there, uh, or not clones, but different varietals. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a huge fan of Sauvignon Blanc. Who knows? Um, with a name like Homaker, I probably should be investigating a lot more German varietals. Um, I've been making some Riesling off of Elk Cove's estate vineyard, so, you know, 35-year-old plus 40-year-old vines um, that I'm pretty enamored with. But um, I think those are the things that I want to explore on the wine side. Uh, we just <coughs> just picked up uh, another seven uh, baby doll sheep a week ago. Uh, uh, so we expect that we'll, by summer, we'll have um, gosh, uh, close to 20 or so. And we're looking at reworking the, you know, the low wire on the vineyard so that they can, they can move in through the vineyard more easily. And definitely with the new planting and getting away from, uh, mowing and that kind of stuff with those. Uh, we have COVID brought us a lot of new animals, uh, uh, we have Highland cattle, we have Dexters, we uh, have hogs every year and sheep and a, a big old guard dog now that lives with the sheep. And um, so kind of continuing our work on our farm. Uh, I, I see that as the future, but um, I don't know. I, I, I can't help but look at the needs of today um, both locally and around the world uh, have gotten more obvious and uh, pronounced. And I want to carve out a big part of my time to get engaged and become more active in things that are broader than wine and winemaking and the Willamette Valley, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that over the last four years, especially, that has become a, a real obvious thing for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's that's kind of what I see. Come and ask me next week. I'll probably have a new answer. Well, thank you.
so much for this. This was a wonderful. Uh, thank yeah. you for your story, for your time, uh, and uh, an invaluable uh, interview this one. So thank you so much. We're going to let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.